This is section 24 of What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Is Shakespeare Dead? Parts 8 and 9. 8. Shakespeare as a Lawyer. Note 1. From Chapter 13 of The Shakespeare Problem Restated by George G. Greenwood, M.P., John Lane Company, Publishers. The plays and poems of Shakespeare supply ample evidence that their author not only had a very extensive and accurate knowledge of law, but that he was well acquainted with the manners and customs of members of the inns of court and with legal life generally. While novelists and dramatists are constantly making mistakes as to the laws of marriage, of wills, and inheritance, to Shakespeare's law, lavishly as he expounds it, there can neither be demurrer, nor bill of exceptions, nor writ of error. Such was the testimony borne by one of the most distinguished lawyers of the nineteenth century who was raised to the high office of Lord Chief Justice in 1850, and subsequently became Lord Chancellor. Its weight will, doubtless, be more appreciated by lawyers than by laymen, for only lawyers know how impossible it is for those who have not served an apprenticeship to the law to avoid displaying their ignorance if they venture to employ legal terms and to discuss legal doctrines. "'There is nothing so dangerous,' wrote Lord Campbell, "'as for one not of the craft to tamper with our Freemasonry.' A layman is certain to betray himself by using some expression which a lawyer would never employ. Mr. Sidney Lee himself supplies us with an example of this. He writes, page 164, On February 15, 1609, Shakespeare obtained judgment from a jury against Addenbroke for the payment of number six and number one, five shillings, zero pennies, costs. Now a lawyer would never have spoken of obtaining judgment from a jury, for it is the function of a jury not to deliver judgment which is the prerogative of the court, but to find a verdict on the facts. The error is, indeed, a venial one, but it is just one of those little things which at once enable a lawyer to know if the writer is a layman or one of the craft. But when a layman ventures to plunge deeply into legal subjects, he is naturally apt to make an exhibition of his incompetence. "'Let a non-professional man, however acute,' writes Lord Campbell again, presume to talk law, or to draw illustrations from legal science in discussing other subjects, and he will speedily fall into laughable absurdity. And what does the same high authority say about Shakespeare? He had a deep technical knowledge of the law, and an easy familiarity with some of the most abstruse proceedings in English jurisprudence. And again, Whenever he indulges this propensity, he uniformly lays down good law. Of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, he says, If Lord Eldon could be supposed to have written the play, I do not see how he could be chargeable with having forgotten any of his law while writing it. Charles and Mary Cowden Clark speak of the marvelous intimacy which he displays with legal terms, his frequent adoption of them in illustration, and his curiously technical knowledge of their form and force. Malone himself, a lawyer, wrote, His knowledge of legal terms is not merely such as might be acquired by the casual observation of even his all-comprehending mind. It has the appearance of technical skill. 
another lawyer and well-known shakespearean richard grant white says no dramatist of the time not even beaumont who was the younger son of a judge of the common pleas and who after studying in the inns of court abandoned law for the drama used legal phrases with shakespeare's readiness and exactness and the significance of this fact is heightened by another that it is only to the language of the law that he exhibits this inclination the phrases peculiar to other occupations serve him on rare occasions by way of description comparison or illustration generally when something in the scene suggests them but legal phrases flow from his pen as part of his vocabulary and parcel of his thought take the word purchase for instance which in ordinary use means to acquire by giving value but applies in law to all legal modes of obtaining property except by inheritance or descent and in this peculiar sense the word occurs five times in shakespeare's thirty-four plays and only in one single instance in the fifty-four plays of beaumont and fletcher it has been suggested that it was in attendance upon the courts in london that he picked up his legal vocabulary but this supposition not only fails to account for shakespeare's peculiar freedom and exactness in the use of that phraseology it does not even place him in the way of learning those terms his use of which is most remarkable which are not such as he would have heard at ordinary proceedings at nisi prius but such as refer to the tenure or transfer of real property fine and recovery statutes merchant purchase indenture tenure double voucher fee simple fee farm remainder reversion forfeiture etc this conveyancer's jargon could not have been picked up by hanging round the courts of law in london two hundred and fifty years ago when suits as to the title of real property were comparatively rare and besides shakespeare uses his law just as freely in his first plays written in his first london years as in those produced at a later period just as exactly too for the correctness and propriety with which these terms are introduced have compelled the admiration of a chief justice and a lord chancellor senator davis wrote we seem to have something more than a silist's temerity of indulgence in the terms of an unfamiliar art no legal solecisms will be found the abstrusest elements of the common law are impressed into a disciplined service over and over again where such knowledge is unexampled in writers unlearned in the law shakespeare appears in perfect possession of it in the law of real property its rules of tenure and descents its entails its fines and recoveries their vouchers and double vouchers in the procedure of the courts the method of bringing writs and arrests the nature of actions the rules of pleading the law of escapes and of contempt of court in the principles of evidence both technical and philosophical in the distinction between the temporal and spiritual tribunals in the law of attainder and forfeiture in the requisites of a valid marriage in the presumption of legitimacy in the learning of the law of prerogative in the inalienable character of the crown this mastership appears with surprising authority to all this testimony and there is much more which i have not cited may now be added that of a great lawyer of our own times viz sir james plaisted wilde q c eighteen fifty five 
created a baron of the exchequer in eighteen sixty promoted to the post of judge ordinary and judge of the courts of probate and divorce in eighteen sixty three and better known to the world as lord penzance to which dignity he was raised in eighteen sixty nine lord penzance as all lawyers know and as the late mr inderwick k c has testified was one of the first legal authorities of his day famous for his remarkable grasp of legal principles and endowed by nature with a remarkable facility for marshalling facts and for a clear expression of his views lord penzance speaks of shakespeare's perfect familiarity with not only the principles axioms and maxims but the technicalities of english law a knowledge so perfect and intimate that he was never incorrect and never at fault the mode in which this knowledge was pressed into service on all occasions to express his meaning and illustrate his thoughts was quite unexampled he seems to have had a special pleasure in his complete and ready mastership of it in all its branches as manifested in the plays this legal knowledge and learning had therefore a special character which places it on a wholly different footing from the rest of the multifarious knowledge which is exhibited in page after page of the plays at every turn and point at which the author required a metaphor simile or illustration his mind ever turned first to the law he seems almost to have thought in legal phrases the commonest of legal expressions were ever at the end of his pen in description or illustration that he should have descanted in lawyer language when he had a forensic subject in hand such as shylock's bond was to be expected but the knowledge of law in shakespeare was exhibited in a far different manner it protruded itself on all occasions appropriate or inappropriate and mingled itself with strains of thought widely divergent from forensic subjects again to acquire a perfect familiarity with legal principles and an accurate and ready use of the technical terms and phrases not only of the conveyancer's office but of the pleader's chambers and the courts at westminster nothing short of employment in some career involving constant contact with legal questions and general legal work would be requisite but a continuous employment involves the element of time and time was just what the manager of two theatres had not at his disposal in what portion of shakespeare's i e shakespeare's with only one a career would it be possible to point out that time could be found for the interposition of a legal employment in the chambers or offices of practicing lawyers stratfordians as is well known casting about for some possible explanation of shakespeare's extraordinary knowledge of law have made the suggestion that shakespeare might conceivably have been a clerk in an attorney's office before he came to london mr collier wrote to lord campbell to ask his opinion as to the probability of this being true his answer was as follows you require us to believe implicitly a fact of which if true positive and irrefragable evidence in his own handwriting might have been forthcoming to establish it not having been actually enrolled as an attorney neither the records of the local court at stratford nor of the superior courts at westminster would present his name as being concerned in any suit as an attorney but it might reasonably have been expected that there would be deeds or wills witnessed by him still extant and after a very diligent search none such can be discovered 
Upon this Lord Penzance comments, It cannot be doubted that Lord Campbell was right in this. No young man could have been at work in an attorney's office without being called upon continually to act as a witness, and in many other ways leaving traces of his work and name. There is not a single fact or incident in all that is known of Shakespeare, even by rumor or tradition, which supports this notion of a clerkship. And after much argument and surmise which has been indulged in on this subject, we may, I think, safely put the notion on one side, for no less an authority than Mr. Grant White says finally that the idea of his having been clerk to an attorney has been blown to pieces. It is altogether characteristic of Mr. Churton Collins that he, nevertheless, adopts this exploded myth, that Shakespeare was in early life employed as a clerk in an attorney's office may be correct. At Stratford there was by royal charter a court of record sitting every fortnight, with six attorneys, besides the town clerk, belonging to it, and it is certainly not straining probability to suppose that the young Shakespeare may have had employment in one of them. There is, it is true, no tradition to this effect, but such traditions as we have about Shakespeare's occupation between the time of leaving school and going to London are so loose and baseless that no confidence can be placed in them. It is, to say the least, more probable that he was in an attorney's office than that he was a butcher killing calves in a high style and making speeches over them. This is a charming specimen of Stratfordian argument. There is, as we have seen, a very old tradition that Shakespeare was a butcher's apprentice. John Dowdle, who made a tour in Warwickshire in 1693, testifies to it as coming from the old clerk who showed him over the church, and it is unhesitatingly accepted as true by Mr. Hallowell Phillips, volume 1, page 11, and volume 2, pages 71-72. Mr. Sidney Lee sees nothing improbable in it, and it is supported by Aubrey, who must have written his account some time before 1680, when his manuscript was completed. Of the attorney's clerk hypothesis, on the other hand, there is not the faintest vestige of a tradition. It has been evolved out of the fertile imaginations of embarrassed Stratfordians, seeking for some explanation of the Stratford rustic's marvelous acquaintance with law and legal terms and legal life but Mr. Churton Collins has not the least hesitation in throwing over the tradition which has the warrant of antiquity, and setting up in its stead this ridiculous invention, for which not only is there no shred of positive evidence, but which, as Lord Campbell and Lord Penzance point out, is really put out of court by the negative evidence, since no young man could have been at work in an attorney's office without being called upon continually to act as a witness and in many other ways leaving traces of his work and name. And as Mr. Edwards further points out, since the day when Lord Campbell's book was published, between forty and fifty years ago, every old deed or will, to say nothing of other legal papers, dated during the period of William Shakespeare's youth, has been scrutinized over half a dozen shires, and not one signature of the young man has been found. Moreover, if Shakespeare had served as clerk in an attorney's office, it is clear that he must have served for a considerable period in order to have gained, if indeed it is credible that he could have so gained, his remarkable knowledge of law. Can we then for a moment believe that, if this had been so, 
tradition would have been absolutely silent on the matter that dowdle's old clerk over eighty years of age should have never heard of it though he was sure enough about the butcher's apprentice and that all the other ancient witnesses should be in similar ignorance but such are the methods of stratfordian controversy tradition is to be scouted when it is found inconvenient but cited as irrefragable truth when it suits the case shakespeare of stratford was the author of the plays and poems but the author of the plays and poems could not have been a butcher's apprentice away therefore with tradition but the author of the plays and poems must have had a very large and very accurate knowledge of the law therefore shakespeare of stratford must have been an attorney's clerk the method is simplicity itself by similar reasoning shakespeare has been made a country schoolmaster a soldier a physician a printer and a good many other things besides according to the inclination and the exigencies of the commentator it would not be in the least surprising to find that he was studying latin as a schoolmaster and law in an attorney's office at the same time however we must do mr collins the justice of saying that he has fully recognized what is indeed tolerably obvious that shakespeare must have had a sound legal training it may of course be urged he writes that shakespeare's knowledge of medicine and particularly that branch of it which related to morbid psychology is equally remarkable and that no one has ever contended that he was a physician here mr collins is wrong that contention also has been put forward it may be urged that his acquaintance with the technicalities of other crafts and callings notably of marine and military affairs was also extraordinary and yet no one has suspected him of being a sailor or a soldier wrong again why even messrs garnet and goss suspect that he was a soldier this may be conceded but the concession hardly furnishes an analogy to these and all other subjects he recurs occasionally and in season but with reminiscences of the law his memory as is abundantly clear was simply saturated in season and out of season now in manifest now in recondite application he presses it into the service of expression and illustration at least a third of his myriad metaphors are derived from it it would indeed be difficult to find a single act in any of his dramas nay in some of them a single scene the diction and imagery of which are not colored by it much of his law may have been acquired from three books easily accessible to him namely totel's precedents fifteen seventy two pulton's statutes fifteen seventy eight and france's lawyer's logic fifteen eighty eight works with which he certainly seems to have been familiar but much of it could only have come from one who had an intimate acquaintance with legal proceedings we quite agree with mr castle that shakespeare's legal knowledge is not what could have been picked up in an attorney's office but could only have been learned by an actual attendance at the courts at a pleader's chambers and on circuit or by associating intimately with members of the bench and bar this is excellent but what is mr collins explanation perhaps the simplest solution of the problem is to accept the hypothesis that in early life he was in an attorney's office that he there contracted a love for the law which never left him 
that as a young man in london he continued to study or dabble in it for his amusement to stroll in leisure hours into the courts and to frequent the society of lawyers on no other supposition is it possible to explain the attraction which the law evidently had for him and his minute and undeviating accuracy in a subject where no layman who has indulged in such copious and ostentatious display of legal technicalities has ever yet succeeded in keeping himself from tripping a lame conclusion no other supposition indeed yes there is another and a very obvious supposition namely that shakespeare was himself a lawyer well versed in his trade versed in all the ways of the courts and living in close intimacy with judges and members of the inns of court one is of course thankful that mr collins has appreciated the fact that shakespeare must have had a sound legal training but i may be forgiven if i do not attach quite so much importance to his pronouncements on this branch of the subject as to those of malone lord campbell judge holmes mr castle k c lord penzance mr grant white and other lawyers who have expressed their opinion on the matter of shakespeare's legal acquirements here it may perhaps be worth while to quote again from lord penzance's book as to the suggestion that shakespeare had somehow or other managed to acquire a perfect familiarity with legal principles and an accurate and ready use of the technical terms and phrases not only of the conveyancer's office but of the pleader's chambers and the courts at westminster this as lord penzance points out would require nothing short of employment in some career involving constant contact with legal questions and general legal work but in what portion of shakespeare's career would it be possible to point out that time could be found for the interposition of a legal employment in the chambers or offices of practicing lawyers it is beyond doubt that at an early period he was called upon to abandon his attendance at school and assist his father and was soon after at the age of sixteen bound apprentice to a trade while under the obligation of this bond he could not have pursued any other employment then he leaves stratford and comes to london he has to provide himself with a means of a livelihood and this he did in some capacity at the theatre no one doubts that the holding of horses is scouted by many and perhaps with justice as being unlikely and certainly unproved but whatever the nature of his employment was at the theatre there is hardly room for the belief that it could have been other than continuous for his progress there was so rapid ere long he had been taken into the company as an actor and was soon spoken of as a johannes factotum his rapid accumulation of wealth speaks volumes for the constancy and activity of his services one fails to see when there could be a break in the current of his life at this period of it giving room or opportunity for legal or indeed any other employment in fifteen eighty nine says knight we have undeniable evidence that he had not only a casual engagement was not only a salaried servant as many players were but was a shareholder in the company of the queen's players with other shareholders below him on the list this fifteen eighty nine would be within two years after his arrival in london which is placed by white and hallowell phillips about the year fifteen eighty seven the difficulty in supposing that starting with a state of ignorance in fifteen eighty seven 
when he is supposed to have come to london he was induced to enter upon a course of most extended study and mental culture is almost insuperable still it was physically possible provided always that he could have had access to the needful books but this legal training seems to me to stand on a different footing it is not only unaccountable and incredible but it is actually negatived by the known facts of his career lord penzance then refers to the fact that by fifteen ninety two according to the best authority mr grant white several of the plays had been written the comedy of errors in fifteen eighty nine love's labors lost in fifteen eighty nine two gentlemen of verona in fifteen eighty nine or fifteen ninety and so forth and then asks with this catalogue of dramatic work on hand was it possible that he could have taken a leading part in the management and conduct of two theatres and if mr phillips is to be relied upon taken his share in the performance of the provincial tours of his company and at the same time devoted himself to the study of the law in all its branches so efficiently as to make himself complete master of its principles and practice and saturate his mind with all its most technical terms i have cited this passage from lord penzance's book because it lay before me and i had already quoted from it on the matter of shakespeare's legal knowledge but other writers have still better set forth the insuperable difficulties as they seem to me which beset the idea that shakespeare might have found time in some unknown period of early life amid multifarious other occupations for the study of classics literature and law to say nothing of languages and a few other matters lord penzance further asks his readers did you ever meet with or hear of an instance in which a young man in this country gave himself up to legal studies and engaged in legal employments which is the only way of becoming familiar with the technicalities of practice unless with a view of practicing in that profession i do not believe that it would be easy or indeed possible to produce an instance in which the law has been seriously studied in all its branches except as a qualification for practice in the legal profession this testimony is so strong so direct so authoritative and so uncheapened unwatered by guesses and surmises and maybe so's and might have beens and could have beens and must have beens and the rest of that ton of plaster of paris out of which the biographers have built the colossal brontosaur which goes by the stratford actor's name that it quite convinces me that the man who wrote shakespeare's works knew all about law and lawyers also that that man could not have been the stratford shakespeare and wasn't who did write these works then i wish i knew nine did francis bacon write shakespeare's works nobody knows we cannot say we know a thing when that thing has not been proved know is too strong a word to use when the evidence is not final and absolutely conclusive we can infer if we want to like those slaves no i will not write that word it is not kind it is not courteous the upholders of the stratford shakespeare superstition call us the hardest names they can think of and they keep doing it all the time very well if they like to descend to that level let them do it but i will not so undignify myself as to follow them 
I cannot call them harsh names. The most I can do is to indicate them by terms reflecting my disapproval, and this without malice, without venom. To resume, what I was about to say was, those thugs have built their entire superstition upon inferences, not upon known and established facts. It is a weak method, and poor, and I am glad to be able to say our side never resorts to it while there is anything else to resort to. But when we must, we must, and we have now arrived at a place of that sort. Since the Stratford Shakespeare couldn't have written the works, we infer that somebody did. Who was it, then? This requires some more inferring. Ordinarily, when an unsigned poem sweeps across the continent like a tidal wave whose roar and boom and thunder are made up of admiration, delight, and applause, a dozen obscure people rise up and claim the authorship. Why a dozen, instead of only one or two? One reason is because there are a dozen that are recognizably competent to do that poem. Do you remember Beautiful Snow? Do you remember Rock me to sleep, mother, rock me to sleep. Do you remember? Backward, turn, backward, O time in thy flight. Make me a child again, just for to-night. I remember them very well. Their authorship was claimed by most of the grown-up people who were alive at the time, and every claimant had one plausible argument in his favor, at least. To wit, he could have done the authoring. He was competent. Have the works been claimed by a dozen? They haven't. There was good reason. The world knows there was but one man on the planet at the time who was competent, not a dozen, and not two. A long time ago the dwellers in a far country used now and then to find a procession of prodigious footprints stretching across the plain, footprints that were three miles apart, each footprint a third of a mile long and a furlong deep and with forests and villages mashed to mush in it. Was there any doubt as to who made that mighty trail? Were there a dozen claimants? Were there two? No. The people knew who it was that had been along there. There was only one Hercules. There has been only one Shakespeare. There couldn't be two. Certainly there couldn't be two at the same time. It takes ages to bring forth a Shakespeare, and some more ages to match him. This one was not matched before his time, nor during his time, and hasn't been matched since. The prospect of matching him in our time is not bright. The Baconians claim that the Stratford Shakespeare was not qualified to write the works, and that Francis Bacon was. They claim that Bacon possessed the stupendous equipment, both natural and acquired, for the miracle, and that no other Englishman of his day possessed the like, or indeed anything closely approaching it. Macaulay, in his essay, has much to say about the splendor and horizonless magnitude of that equipment. Also he has synopsized Bacon's history, a thing which cannot be done for the Stratford Shakespeare, for he hasn't any history to synopsize. Bacon's history is open to the world, from his boyhood to his death in old age, a history consisting of known facts, displayed in minute and multitudinous detail. Facts, not guesses and conjectures, and might-have-beens. 
whereby it appears that he was born of a race of statesmen and had a lord chancellor for his father and a mother who was distinguished both as a linguist and a theologian she corresponded in greek with bishop jewell and translated his apologia from the latin so correctly that neither he nor archbishop parker could suggest a single alteration it is the atmosphere we are reared in that determines how our inclinations and aspirations shall tend the atmosphere furnished by the parents to the son in this present case was an atmosphere saturated with learning with thinkings and ponderings upon deep subjects and with polite culture it had its natural effect shakespeare of stratford was reared in a house which had no use for books since its owners his parents were without education this may have had an effect upon the son but we do not know because we have no history of him of an informing sort there were but few books anywhere in that day and only the well-to-do and highly educated possessed them they being almost confined to the dead languages all the valuable books then extant in all the vernacular dialects of europe would hardly have filled a single shelf imagine it the few existing books were in the latin tongue mainly a person who was ignorant of it was shut out from all acquaintance not merely with cicero and virgil but with the most interesting memoirs state papers and pamphlets of his own time a literature necessary to the stratford lad for his fictitious reputation's sake since the writer of his works would begin to use it wholesale and in a most masterly way before the lad was hardly more than out of his teens and into his twenties at fifteen bacon was sent to the university and he spent three years there thence he went to paris in the train of the english ambassador and there he mingled daily with the wise the cultured the great and the aristocracy of fashion during another three years a total of six years spent at the sources of knowledge knowledge both of books and of men the three spent at the university were coeval with the second and last three spent by the little stratford lad at stratford school supposedly and perhapsedly and maybe and by inference with nothing to infer from the second three of the baconian six were presumably spent by the stratford lad as apprentice to a butcher that is the thugs presume it on no evidence of any kind which is their way when they want a historical fact fact and presumption are for business purposes all the same to them they know the difference but they also know how to blink it they know too that while in history building a fact is better than a presumption it doesn't take a presumption long to bloom into a fact when they have the handling of it they know by old experience that when they get hold of a presumption tadpole he is not going to stay tadpole in their history tank no they know how to develop him into the giant four-legged bullfrog of fact and make him sit up on his hams and puff out his chin and look important and insolent and come to stay and assert his genuine simon pure authenticity with a thundering bellow that will convince everybody because it is so loud the thug is aware that loudness convinces sixty persons where reasoning convinces but one i wouldn't be a thug not even if but never mind about that it has nothing to do with the argument and it is not noble in spirit besides if i am better than a thug is the merit mine 
no it is his then to him be the praise that is the right spirit they presume the lad severed his presumed connection with the stratford school to become apprentice to a butcher they also presume that the butcher was his father they don't know there is no written record of it nor any other actual evidence if it would have helped their case any they would have apprenticed him to thirty butchers to fifty butchers to a wilderness of butchers all by their patented method presumption if it will help their case they will do it yet and if it will further help it they will presume that all those butchers were his father and the week after they will say it why it is just like being the past tense of the compound reflexive adverbial incandescent hypodermic irregular accusative noun of multitude which is father to the expression which the grammarians call verb it is like a whole ancestry with only one posterity to resume next the young bacon took up the study of law and mastered that abstruse science from that day to the end of his life he was daily in close contact with lawyers and judges not as a casual onlooker in intervals between holding horses in front of a theatre but as a practicing lawyer a great and successful one a renowned one a launcelot of the bar the most formidable lance in the high brotherhood of the legal table round he lived in the law's atmosphere thenceforth all his years and by sheer ability forced his way up its difficult steeps to its supremest summit the lord chancellorship leaving behind him no fellow craftsman qualified to challenge his divine right to that majestic place when we read the praises bestowed by lord penzance and the other illustrious experts upon the legal condition and legal aptnesses brilliances profundities and felicities so prodigally displayed in the plays and try to fit them to the historyless stratford stage manager they sound wild strange incredible ludicrous but when we put them in the mouth of bacon they do not sound strange they seem in their natural and rightful place they seem at home there please turn back and read them again attributed to shakespeare of stratford they are meaningless they are inebriate extravagancies intemperate admirations of the dark side of the moon so to speak attributed to bacon they are admirations of the golden glories of the moon's front side the moon at the full and not intemperate not overwrought but sane and right and justified at every turn and point at which the author required a metaphor simile or illustration his mind ever turned first to the law he seems almost to have thought in legal phrases the commonest legal phrases the commonest of legal expressions were ever at the end of his pen that could happen to no one but a person whose trade was the law it could not happen to a dabbler in it veteran mariners fill their conversation with sailor phrases and draw all their similes from the ship and the sea and the storm but no mere passenger ever does it be he of stratford or elsewhere or could do it with anything resembling accuracy if he were hardy enough to try please read again what lord campbell and the other great authorities have said about bacon when they thought they were saying it about shakespeare of stratford End of section 24. Parts 8 and 9 of Is Shakespeare Dead?